Turning into Jumpy Ellie's basketball show Hosted by a guy called Jumpy Ellie Tuning into Jumpy Ellie's basketball show At JumpyEllie.com Hey, hey, good morning, everybody. Another edition of the Cast Ball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Pastor Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. A handful of things we're going to get into today, as always, in a world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. Uh, I wanted to get into a NBA Hall of Fame case, talking about a player that died before his time and compared to another player that died before his time as well. So we'll touch on that. A little bit later, if we have time today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the comparison, and it's a generational comparison. I think one that those in each of said generation would be a little bit biased towards one or another, and the generation that would support one of the players that I'm going to talk about is dying by the day. And that's a comparison between Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle. And I think it is really that close. You're talking about two of the best players, certainly the best offensive position players to ever play. If you want to talk about leadership, you want to talk about defense, you want to talk about all-around talent, I think there's cases you can make for both. But we're going to start out today is something on the generic side, but something that I think a lot of fans and a lot of people that do sports talk have tended to lose sight of. And that's the fact that the difference between a good team and a bad team isn't always the players that we blame. It isn't always the coaches we blame. It isn't always the general managers, the owners, anybody else that we blame. It's just something that is that simple. It's whether your favorite team wins or your favorite team loses. And that determines whether you have a losing or a winning team. Now, I'm not patronizing right now. I'm not being, you know, ultimately sarcastic or facetious or trying to to mess with your mind or talk down to you or make as if what I'm saying is so much more intelligent than anything you could come up with. But we tend to judge players based off of how often they win. LeBron James has won, what, one two, three, four NBA championships. But it's not six like Michael won. It's not five like Kobe won. It's not 11 like Bill Russell won. But we tend to not break down the individual scenarios that each one of these players have to go through. And I think if you talk about the NFL right now, you can talk about how it applies to Coach Doug Peterson, quarterback Carson Wentz, and the Philadelphia Eagles. It was three years ago where Carson Wentz, you can make a very good case, was the best player in the National Football League, a guy that was right about to be in the discussion for the Most Valuable Player Award. And then he ended up getting hurt. In comes Nick Foles. Eagles win a Super Bowl, the Philly Special. Doug Peterson putting this offense together for Nick Foles, who we all understand that even though he was the Super Bowl MVP, that he probably wasn't an all-time great. Maybe he could be a franchise quarterback. You know, he tried it when he signed with the Jacksonville Jaguars. He's competing with Mitchell Trubisky with the Chicago Bears right now at this given moment. But we probably knew he wasn't going to be an all-time great. He wasn't going to be an MVP during a regular season. He had a great game. 
and the Eagles had a great run that season. Now, three years later, we look at the Philadelphia Eagles, and a lot has changed, certainly. Carson Wentz has digressed. You know, maybe some of the injuries have caught up with him. Um, the offensive line certainly isn't the same. The supporting cast for the Philadelphia Eagles, if you look back to their Super Bowl run, and even two years ago, it's really not the same. The players that they have have digressed a little bit, but also a lot of the firepower and the depth that the Philadelphia Eagles have had over the last series of years, they don't have so much to share. And then we go to the coach, and we all of a sudden make the assumption that Doug Peterson, who won a Super Bowl just three years ago, by the way, the only Super Bowl in the history of the Philadelphia Eagles franchise, all of a sudden doesn't know how to coach. And this, is, this just isn't Philadelphia-centric. This is national. We tend to judge how good a coach or a baseball a manager is based off of wins and losses. But we tend to be hypocrites in many instances. You look at a guy like Andy Reid. Andy Reid with the Philadelphia Eagles was good enough to get the team to the NFC Championship game. He did that several times. He got his team to a Super Bowl where they lost a close game to Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, and the New England Patriots. Now, Andy Reid, if you graded him as a head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, he's missing one thing. He never won a Super Bowl championship for them. You look back and you say, hey, he had a nice run. He, he's going to be amongst the leaders in all-time wins in the history of the Philadelphia Eagles and their franchise as a head coach forever. He may not be number one, but at some point, it, his accomplishments, excuse me, on the football field as a head coach are going to withstand the test of time. We look at Andy Reid with the Kansas City Chiefs. He's got Patrick Mahomes. He's got Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey, and you know what? A very underrated defense over there in Kansas City. They won the Super Bowl last year, and the reality of it was they didn't really have that much of a test in any one of their postseason playoff and Super Bowl matchups. Things came pretty easy for them. They won the Super Bowl. Did all of a sudden Andy Reid figure out how to head coach or how to be a head coach in the National Football League? I look at the great Casey Stengel, and Casey Stengel is a Hall of Fame manager based off of his accomplishments with the New York Yankees, all those pennants he won while he was the manager for the Yankees from 1949 to 1960, the seven World Series championships. There's no question there's a spot in baseball's Hall of Fame for a manager that did that. And if he just managed the Yankees, he would have been just as much of a Hall of Famer. But we know the story of Casey Stengel. We know that he was the manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1930s, the Boston Braves slash Bees, a little bit later in the 1930s. He went over to the Pacific Coast League, was the manager of the Oakland Oaks, which is where he was taken out of there to become the Yankees manager in 1949. After the Yankees deemed that he was too old to be their manager after the 1960 World Series, he ended up going to manage the New York Mets, one of the worst teams in the history of Major League Baseball. From 1962 to 1965, the New York Mets were a laughingstock. Now, fans from that time, radio personalities, writers, newspaper writers, were very critical, some of Casey Stengel, 
saying, hey, he was over the hill. He shouldn't be managing. And maybe that was the reason why the Mets weren't any good. And while maybe they could have been right a little bit, the talent on that New York Mets team was terrible. In fact, the decisions that were made by the Mets front office to bring in guys like Duke Snyder and Richie Ashburn and Frank Thomas and eventually Warren Spahn and Yogi Berra, players that grabbed the fans' attention from a name standpoint and not so much of what they could accomplish and do on the field anymore was the Mets' downfall a lot more than it was Casey Stengel. But we point to the age and the fact that he was over 70, and when he ended up breaking his hip in 1965, he was 75 years old when he finally stepped down as being a major league manager. Now, you think of Tony La Russa, who's 72 right now, he's going to manage the Chicago White Sox. Is he over the hill? Is he going to be able to do things on the field as a manager that he could when he managed the St. Louis Cardinals and the Oakland Athletics? We know the answer is a flat no. We know that managers of Major League Baseball don't have the same kind of control that they had in years past. It's a different type of game. You have to embrace the analytics. You have to essentially take the game plan from those that are writing the game plan and implement it during the game. Those that were clamoring for Kevin Cash to not take Blake Snell out of game six or was it game five or game six of the 2020 World Series? You knew or you should know that he had no choice. That wasn't his decision. So you're watching a game in baseball, which has changed. And I think it's going to be very interesting if you think of Tony La Russa, because he's got championship pedigree. He was in three World Series and won one with the Oakland Athletics. He was in, what, three World Series with the St. Louis Cardinals, winning two of them. So he's a Hall of Fame manager with a Hall of Fame winning pedigree. Is that going to automatically mean that the Chicago White Sox are going to be on to bigger and better things this year? Now, it's kind of torn in the middle because I think you can look at Tony La Russa's track record and say, hey, he's a winner. A winner leading a team, he should be able to lead them to victory. And then the other side of it that says, hey, the game has passed him by, maybe he won't be able to do it. But you know what the determining factor is going to be? Whether Chicago White Sox are a winning team or a losing team in 2021? The answer is going to be how good that team is, how good those players are. Is Tim Anderson, you know, an underrated star in a game of baseball? Luis Robert and Eloy Jimenez, Jose Abreu winning the MVP. They got some good pitching as well, of course, with Lucas Giolito and Dallas Keuchel. How aggressive are they going to be that offseason to try to put the best possible team on the field? This is a talented team. This is a team that probably could compete for a World Series if Rick Renneria was still the manager. So I think the players on the field are going to have a big say in how good of a manager Tony La Russa is in year 2021 and maybe beyond. Now, if there's no connection, which I think Tony La Russa, I don't think he would have volunteered for the job. I don't think he would have taken the job if he didn't think that he could at least make a good effort to relate to today's players. You can look at the 2012 situation with the, the uh, Boston Red Sox and Bobby Valentine. He was a fish out of water there. Even though he had managed overseas in Japan and in China, you know, he hadn't managed in the major leagues in over 10 years since he was with the New York Mets in 2002. 
Now, that didn't work out. Maybe we're looking at another situation with Tony La Russa, who's got about the same amount of time that he's been out of the dugout. He's been involved in Major League Baseball. He's worked with teams in their front office. But I don't think this is about Tony La Russa. This is more about how good of a team are the Chicago White Sox. And if Tony La Russa doesn't get in the way, like Bobby Valentine clearly did in 2012 with the Boston Red Sox, then I think this team has just as much of a chance to go out there and compete and win and could provide a, an exciting and interesting closure to the managerial career of Tony La Russa. If he can win a World Series with the Chicago White Sox, to say, hey, I managed three teams, the White Sox, the Athletics, and the Cardinals, and I won a World Series with each one of them, that'd be, uh, that'd be pretty, pretty fair. You know, LeBron James can say that. He won an NBA championship with Cleveland, two with the Miami Heat, at least one with the Los Angeles Lakers. It's something to be proud of, to say you won everywhere that you went. But to say that Tony La Russa, as a manager, is going to be the sole determining factor of how good the Chicago White Sox are, listen, if the White Sox get off to a bad start, it's going to be assumed that Tony La Russa just isn't a good manager. But once again, we're not going to look at the tangibles and intangibles when it comes to how a baseball team is doing. Sometimes the difference between a victory and a loss is you know, just the slightest of iotas. You can talk about an NBA basketball game that comes down to the last shot. The ball's in somebody's hands. That team's down by one. That player puts up that shot, and that shot's either going to go in, and that team's going to win, or that shot's not going to go in, and that team's going to lose. And the results of that game are going to be an in, have a future impact on that player, the star players on that team, and that coach, we understand in baseball that it could be the slightest of things that could be the difference between a team that wins and a team that loses. But we tend to put too much emphasis in a coach, a manager. Yeah, that manager is so good. Let me ask you a question. Ned Yost was the manager of the Kansas City Royals for a long time. Got the team to the World Series in 2014, won a World Series with them in 2015. The team digressed in 2016, 2017, 2018. And finally, 2019, Ned Yost retired as a manager of the Kansas City Royals. Was Ned Yost great in 2014 and 2015 and just a bad manager after that? Or what about Ned Yost before that when the Kansas City Royals weren't any good? Was he a bad manager, all of a sudden figured out how to manage and be a good Major League Baseball manager for two years, and then all of a sudden he sucked after that? The answer is no. Bruce Bochy is probably the best example you can make of a manager just being as good as the talent and players that are assembled and a team that he happens to be presiding over. First with the San Diego Padres, for the most part, the team's had some winning records, made it to the playoffs a couple times. Obviously, one World Series appearance in 1998 where they got swept by the New York Yankees. Was Bruce Bochy only good when the Padres were making the playoffs? Was he great the season they made it to the World Series? Did he end up not being a really good manager overall because the Padres never won a World Series? He goes to San Francisco with the Giants. 
The Giants win the World Series in 2010, 2012, 2014. He's punched a ticket to the Hall of Fame. There's no manager in Major League Baseball history that has won three or more World Series championships that's not in baseball's Hall of Fame. Bruce Bochy's going. In fact, you could say most managers that win two or more usually end up going into baseball hall too. That's why it speaks very highly of a guy like a Terry Francona, who is probably heading to the Hall of Fame as well. Jimmy Leland only won one World Series championship, but was in multiple. He's probably got a good chance. So there's no question that Bruce Bochy, even though he has a losing record as a Major League Baseball manager, is probably heading towards baseball's Hall of Fame. Three World Series championships. Now, was he only great those three seasons? Was he bad after? Or was just the talent on the Giants team not the same as it was when they were winning World Series championships? Another good example is Joe Torre. Joe Torre managed the New York Mets as a player manager in the late 1970s all the way through 1981. And unfortunately, if you go back in the history of the New York Mets franchise, there was a Casey Stengel run of 62 to 65, and then there really was Joe Torre's run from, what, 1977 to 1981? Probably the two worst stretches in the history of the New York Mets franchise. They traded their franchise in Tom Seaver in a, you know, a flurry of deals that they made within two seasons. And those were the worst times, some of the bad times. Joe Torre happened to preside over that. He gets a pass, for the most part. His first job, he took over as a player manager with the Mets. That's his first chance. So the Mets let him go after 1981. Frank Cashier comes in. He wants somebody else to run his team. So he brings in George Bamberger, a connection that he has from his Baltimore Orioles days. So Joe Torre's gone. He goes to the, the Atlanta Braves. Takes the team to the playoffs in 1982. In 1982... Dale Murphy winning the MVP, the whole thing. Did the Atlanta Braves all of a sudden figure it out? Or was it Joe Torre? All of a sudden, he became a great manager for one season. Took the Braves to the playoffs. Two more seasons go by. They don't make the playoffs in 83, 84. He's fired. Ends up taking over the St. Louis Cardinals. Basically taking over for Whitey Herzog, even though Herzog left. Mike Jorgensen, I think. Or no, it was, uh, I'm sorry, Red Shandy's who ended up finishing off the, the season, and I think it was 90 with Whitey Herzog. Joe Torre takes over, high profile, higher. St. Louis Cardinals are very disappointing in that time. And in fact, Joe Torre, and you can talk about the big managers that were before him and after him, Whitey Herzog essentially was his predecessor, and Tony La Russa was essentially the guy that took over for him. They're out there winning World Series and getting the World Series, both Herzog and La Russa got to three World Series as the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. Won a total of three. Joe Torre didn't get the Cardinals to the postseason in the time that he was the manager of that team. So is he a bad manager for the St. Louis Cardinals? Because you know what I'm going to get to next. The Back in the New York Post saying clueless Joe when the New York Yankees hired Joe Torre to be the manager of the New York Yankees. This guy can't do it. Look at his track record. Now, did all of a sudden Joe Torre become a great manager? Did all of a sudden Joe Torre know what he was talking about? Did all of a sudden Joe Torre understand what he was doing, you know, in the dugout? 
just because he took over a Yankees team that won four World Series championships in five years. Not to mention the two other pennants he won with them. You know, 2001 to 2003, I know the Yankee fan looks back at that and says, hey, those were disappointing years. But, you know, he wins six pennants, four World Series championships in less than a decade. Obviously, a ticket punch to baseball's Hall of Fame. But you look back at Joe Torre, was he a bad manager with the Mets? An okay manager with the Braves because he took them to the playoffs, a bad manager for the St. Louis Cardinals. And then all of a sudden he goes to the Yankees and he's one of the best of all time. It goes down to the basics that we tend to not want to talk about. Fans like to assess blame. Talk show hosts and writers and people in the media like to assess blame. It feels better if you put somebody responsible for the reason why things aren't going well. But it comes down to the simplest of things. If the team executed, if the players on the field did a little bit better, sometimes within an at-bat in a Major League Baseball game, if a player swung at that first pitch and hit a three-run homer over the fence, rather than taking the pitch down the middle for strike one, trying to draw a walk, game could have been different. That's not the manager's call. In most cases, the Major League Baseball manager isn't telling somebody whether to swing or not swing at the first pitch. Very uh, few times somebody will get a take sign for the first pitch a pitcher throws. But, you know, you even look at the NBA. Mike Brown was uh, the coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers when LeBron James was there. Took the team deep into the playoffs. Made it to the NBA Finals. LeBron James leaves to go to Miami. Mike Brown's still the head coach. Cavs got one of the worst records that you'd ever seen in the National Basketball Association. Is that solely on Mike Brown? Mike Brown didn't have LeBron James. I think that's that obvious. You don't have the best player in the game. Team's not going to perform that well. Ask the Indianapolis Colts how they dealt with a season without Peyton Manning when it went 0-14. and 14. Won their last two games or won two of their last three games. I'm not 100% sure. I'll stand corrected if I'm wrong. But obviously they weren't the same without Peyton Manning. Now you look at the coach. Is the coach all of a sudden not good? We tend to judge coaches and star players based off of the team's ability to win and lose. But like a politician, we can flip to the other side once they start winning. And I'm not saying it's going to happen in Philadelphia with the Eagles. They're sitting there three, seven, and one right now. One more loss will guarantee them a, a season where they won't have more wins than losses. And obviously, they're looking up at the Giants and the Redskins in the division. But let's say Carson Wentz figures it out, throws some more short passes or whatever, you know, makes some less mistakes. The Eagles play some inspired football and get themselves into the playoffs, win a playoff game. Are we looking at Carson Wentz a little bit differently? Yes. And that's because of wins and losses. Yes, the performance of the quarterback is important. And yes, the Eagles more than likely, if they're going to do any better than they are right now, are going to need their quarterback to play better. But how does it apply to the coach? All of a sudden, the Eagles start winning. All of a sudden, Doug Peterson is going to look like 
a Super Bowl winning head coach again and not a guy that fans and people in the media can't wait to see get fired. This copyright broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or the use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC, is prohibited. Any commercial or the use of programs, such as by charge and admission for showing, is similarly prohibited. So I'll throw some names out there. Kyle Schwarber, David Dahl, Archie Bradley, Eddie Rosario, Adam Duvall, Mikel Franco, Nomar Mazzara, Carlos Rodon. All players that were non-tendered by their Major League Baseball teams. In other words, they're eligible for arbitration. And the team decided that rather rather than go to arbitration or try to work out a deal with said player, they'd rather just cut ties with them and allow them to be a free agent. Now, we understand how the year of 2020 with the pandemic, no fans in the stands, has had some very serious financial implications on every Major League Baseball team. And I think that does go down to the players. So I am sympathetic when it comes to teams probably wanting to watch their payroll a little bit and probably more evaluating each player based off of the salary that they're either making or projecting to make and to see if that really is a true value of what they're worth. Now, my angle here is that I think, you know, we play this armchair general manager. We tend to want to tell teams what they should do with said players. And I think there are some decisions that are a little bit tougher to make than others. Like you think of Chris Bryant, that's a no-brainer. The Cubs would be insane to non-tender him because they could certainly work out a trade with another team and get at the very least something back for Chris Bryant. As it applies to the Mets, you heard a lot of armchair general managers, which basically are the younger crowd when it comes to the aspiring sports writers. They're assuming, ah, Stephen Matz, he was bad last year. The Mets should non-tender him. Robert Gesellman was bad last year. They should just non-tender him. Miguel Castro, I don't know what he is. I don't look at him as a, a, an answer. Let's just non-tender him. And to say that, you're essentially, as a sports writer, a sports talk show host, a member of the media, or just a fan, you feel like you have the right to play poker with the livelihood of a baseball player. Now, does that make you automatically as qualified as a general manager or a team's front office? The, The team's... And the staffs that are essentially making those decisions? No. I mean, you can make it a, a suggestion. Hey, I think this player may be making a little more money. But what is it to you? What is it to you if the Mets tender a contract to Stephen Matz and Robert Kesselman and, and Miguel Castro? Are the Mets a better or a worse team because they did that? You really can't give an answer because you don't know what's going to happen over the course of the next given season. And you look back in years past, and, you know, I stay when it comes to this to think about the Mets. They non-tendered Wilmer Flores a couple years ago. Going back years before that, they did the same to Justin Turner. And I think sometimes you want to trust that the team individually, the team that the player belongs to, 
has more of an understanding of how good that player is than us on the outside as fans and talk show hosts and members of the media. Excuse me. I don't know what's up with me today. Definitely got a lot of agita. (laughs) Apologize for that. But, you know, thinking about it, you know, it's easy to declare whether a player is going to be any better than they were last season. And think about it. It's like, you know, and I can't come up with the right analogy at the moment, but, you know, you think of, you know, you know, back of a baseball card, the most recent year of a baseball reference page when it comes to a baseball player. And you really are only as good as you were last season. You can go back two years and say, hey, the player was pretty good then. Think of Corey Knable. Had Tommy John surgery. Ended up missing a couple of years, came back at the end of 2020, was not good for the Milwaukee Brewers, lost a couple ticks off of his fastball. Brewers getting set to non-tender him because it, it makes sense. You know, why pay a guy $5 million that hasn't really pitched that much in the last three years and hasn't really shown you signs that he could be as dominant as he was? He goes out there and gave his best last year, but it wasn't that good. So the last remnants of how good Corey Knable was, was the 2020 season. Brewers say, Hey, that's not worth 5 million. They work out a deal with the Dodgers who look at that and say, Hey, that 5 million may very well be a good investment for us. Look at Blake Trinan last year. He was very good for them after a down season with the Oakland athletics. Maybe they can get catch lightning in a bottle again with Corey Knable coming over from the Milwaukee Brewers. And think about the depth that the Dodgers have with Joe Kelly, with Kenley Jansen. And they got a couple other good pitchers there. You know, Burst Star, Gratterall, you know, throwing flames. You know, you, you run this guy out there and he has a good year for you. Listen, it's, it's worth it. And if you're the Dodgers, you can afford to take that $5 million and say, hey, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But, you know, my major point when it comes to non-tenders is we tend to be armchair general managers. I mean, we do that in all sports. You know, we do it as it applies to anything. You know, you talk about Monday morning quarterbacking, certainly as it applies to the National Football League. You know, we look back at the games and say, hey, you should have done this, you should have done that. But I think when it comes to this particular issue, non-tendering a baseball player, once again, it's, it's a matter of offering a player that is arbitration eligible a contract for the next season. And you understand through the arbitration scale and about what they're going to be worth and what they may make or what they may last year. And if you think they're overpriced outside of a trade, you may want to consider not offering them a contract, but leave it up to the teams. You know, the teams tend to know their players better than you do. You may, you may watch them all the time, you may have seen every pitch that Steven Matz has ever thrown in his Major League Baseball career. But in this case, I'd rather trust that the Mets know a little more about what to project for the year of 2021. So I'm going to hit a couple quick points. I want to get into the Mantle DiMaggio discussion because I think this is something that certainly is generational. And... Unfortunately, a lot of the Joe DiMaggio fans of the 1940s and certainly up to 51 is last year. Those that were fine, those, those I'm sorry, that were fans of the three-time MVP 
are dying off, and it's sad. I mean, odds are, if you were, uh, uh, you know, somebody young in the 1930s and 1940s, you're, you know, you're very much up there in age. You know, your your age probably starts with an eight, if not a nine. And you talk about the greatness of Joe DiMaggio, and you know, Joe DiMaggio was as dominant of a player in Major League Baseball as there could have been. His career, for the most part, coincided with the great Ted Williams. And I look at Ted Williams, and I just see that he was he was just, Ted, in my opinion, was more of a pure hitter, more of a guy that was just going to go out there and could wake up out of bed and go out there and just produce. Now, I think you could talk about mirror images, uh, you know, Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio, to say, hey, Ted was a left-handed version of Joe D, and Joe D was a right-hand version of Williams. I think they're, they're very good comparisons. Now, it's really hard to knock the career that Joe DiMaggio had. Once again, he's judged by wins, right? Nine World Series championships. You know, you want to take away 1943 because he was, you know, in the armed service. But that was a, a 10th team that he was tactically part of. And he went out there and he played, you know, 13 full seasons. And when his average for the first time in his career dipped considerably in 1951, and injuries ended up taking a little bit of a toll on him. He knew when to walk away. You know, Ralph Kiner, unfortunately, you know, with his injury, walked away. Albert Bell walked away. And you look at those players and you say, you know what? During the time they played, they really dominated the sport. So because of that, you didn't really have any major digression when it comes to Joe DiMaggio. And once again, it's hard to say that Joe DiMaggio, how, how can you say anything bad? about what the guy accomplished over the course of his career. You're talking about a great player, a dominant player, a player that you know was one of the best, if not the best, in the sport over the course of the 13 years that he played. So if you said Joe D, I totally understand. I'm going to bring up Mickey Mantle now. Now, I would guess, if you're putting out a poll, which player was better you're going to find a lot more people that got to see Mickey Mantle play. And there's going to be a biasness in there. It's hard to make that, you know, declaration. Because somebody that may have grew up as a Mickey fan, how could you not? If you were a Yankee fan in the 1950s and 1960s, how could you not love Mickey Mantle? And he really, he really did when he burst on the scene. He was one of the best players that the game had ever seen. He maintained an over 1,000 OPS from his first year in 1951 all the way to 1964. And obviously through natural digression, kind of wasn't the same player in the last four years. But if you want to be hypothetical about it, you could say that's 14 years that Mickey Mantle played. And those 14 years... Really outside of batting average, which Jody hit 325 and Mickey over the course of the 14 years that I'm talking about hit 309. Mickey Mantle was a better player. Now, the Jody apologist, which you have every right to call out whatever you want, can talk about runs batted in, can talk about batting average. And that, for that reason, I believe it is so close. 
And I think, hey, it may be worth it to put out a poll, but I don't think a poll would actually be fair enough to judge how close both of these players were. Because once again, a lot of the Joe D fans, a lot of the fans that got to watch Joe DiMaggio play over the course of the 1940s, unfortunately, are either really, really old and probably not, you know, replying to a poll on Twitter or unfortunately are no longer with us. You still have a good amount of people around that got to see Mickey Mantle play. So I don't know if that poll would necessarily reflect how good both of those players were. And I would say, if I, if I was going to put the fairest poll out there, I'd say it'd be 51-49 in favor of Mickey Mantle, but only slightly. So the last thing I wanted to bring up today is basketball-related. And I want to start out by talking about a short career of a good player that came from Croatia and unfortunately a very untimely death in what was it, 1993? June 7th, 1993, he was only 28 years old. And I'm talking about Drazen Petrovic. And Drazen Petrovic was a, a, dom, a very good scorer. He came up with the Nets in a trade for the Portland Trailblazers in 1990, 1991, was given the ball and all of a sudden became a star. And he really was. The two full seasons he played with the Nets in 91-92 and 92-93. He was a tremendous scorer, a tremendous shooter. And there's nothing, you know, that could happen that could avoid tragedy when it strikes. And Jason Petrovic was taken from us way too early, way too soon. Now, I want to ask, do you believe that he belongs in the NBA or the Nate Smith Pro Basketball Hall of Fame? And it's hard to knock somebody that's no longer with us. Jason Petrovic isn't here to defend himself. Yeah, so I'm not going to take any knocks on him. But I just say, hey, two really good seasons in the NBA, is that worth being in a Pro Basketball Hall of Fame? And I have a motive here of something I'm eventually going to get into. But Jason Petrovic was a very good player. Probably could have been on his way to a Hall of Fame career. But his career was cut short. And when it comes down to it, as sad as it was that his career was cut short, he didn't really have the qualifications of a National Basketball Association Hall of Famer. So I'm going to compare him to another player who he lost. We're talking about a month later. Petrovich was June 7th, 1993. Reggie Lewis we lost on July 27th, 1993. During the NBA season, you're looking at a player that was dominant. Came out of Northeastern, averaged 20 points a game two years in a row, 90-91, I'm sorry, 91-92, 92-93. Prior to that, averaged 18 points, 17 points, 18 points a game in his prior three seasons playing for the Boston Celtics in the NBA. We lost Reggie Lewis 
in a similar tragic and sad situation. Why don't we give him the same consideration for the Naismith Pro Basketball Hall of Fame? And I made the comparison of Petrovic to Jose Fernandez in baseball. Now, baseball has a set rule where you have to play 10 or more seasons. And it's different from other Hall of Fames for many, many different reasons. And I'm not going to get into why I have such a problem with the Baseball Hall of Fame today. But why not consider Reggie Lewis for the Naismith Pro Basketball Hall of Fame? If you want to make the Drazen Petrovic comparison, they died you know, within a little more than a month of each other in the prime of their careers. Petrovic gave you two really good seasons. Reggie Lewis was just as good for those particular two seasons and was solid for three years before that. Why is Drazen Petrovic in the Hall of Fame and not Reggie Lewis? A little bit of a recap of the show today, and as always, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to the Passball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So, I, I mean, I know it comes out as being, uh, you know, kind of talking down to you, maybe a little cavalier from me, maybe a little bit patronizing as I'm breaking down the most simplest of things. When we judge a coach, when we judge a star player in a world of sports, it comes down to whether that team wins or that team loses. But we tend to not factor all the things that lead up to said win or loss. Maybe just have a bad supporting cast, which could have been said about the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James, particularly the first time around. Second time I put on LeBron, because he was essentially the de facto general manager, he goes to Miami, you know, to join Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh goes there, and they make it to four straight NBA Finals, one in two championships. You know, he starts to kind of get what he wants. So when you think of LeBron James as an all-time great, you think, I hey, Michael Jordan never lost in an NBA Finals. You know, you think of Kobe, five NBA championships. Bill Russell, probably a, a different player in a different league. And it gets a little harder to compare you know, Bill Russell and LeBron James. But, you know, those that are naysayers, those that pick on LeBron James, tend to say hey, he hasn't single-handedly delivered enough championships. How many NBA finals has LeBron James been to? And he's been to more than he's lost, than he's won. But does that make him any less of an all-time great? And it, to me, it's hard to really put anybody else other than Michael ahead of him. Now, that's one man's opinion. We could discuss it. I'm sure we could talk about when it comes to the best basketball players of all time. You know, trying to figure out who's, who you think was better, Michael, LeBron. You know, you want to throw a guy like uh, Wilt Chamberlain or Kareem or uh, Bill Russell in there. Shaq, you know, not only dominated the sport, but won his share of NBA championships as well, right, with the Lakers and Miami. It's a, it's a different discussion that you could go out there and bring up. But, you know, as it applies to baseball and football, we tend to judge coaches, managers, and star players by the simplest of things, wins and losses. And you could be just as good of a star player or just as good of a manager or coach and have your team happen to lose. 
It's not a matter of you're a great coach when you win and a bad coach when you lose. Sometimes there's mitigating circumstances. And we understand that most coaches, most managers, take a job in a major professional sport with the understanding that at some point they're going to get fired. How do you explain Andy Reid? Never got to win a Super Bowl with the Philadelphia Eagles. Wins one with the Kansas City Chiefs. Do we assume that he just figured it out? Casey Stengel, the manager of some horrible teams with the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Boston Braves slash Beats, goes to the New York Yankees, wins World Series championships. Was he bad? a bad manager with the Dodgers and Braves and all of a sudden a great manager with the Yankees and then a bad manager with the New York Mets after? Joe Torre, did he finally figure it out when he joined the New York Yankees after being a bad manager with the Mets, the Braves, and the Cardinals? And how about the story of Bruce Bochy? Got Took the San Diego Padres to the postseason and the World Series in 1998. Had some up and down seasons with the San Francisco Giants. And then all of a sudden, the Giants win the World Series in 2010. And then they win the World Series in 2012. And then they win the World Series again in 2014. And that elevates Bruce Bochy into a status where there's no manager in the history of Major League Baseball that has won three or more World Series championships that is not in Baseball's Hall of Fame. Bruce Bochy and the Giants losing record the rest of the way out. Bruce Bochy has got a losing record as a manager in Major League Baseball. Bud is a three-time World Series champion. Joins Bucky Harris, or will join someday, Bucky Harris and Connie Mack as the only managers in Major League Baseball history to be in the Hall of Fame with a losing record. But once again, if we go back to the basics of what fans and people in the media and talk show hosts usually go by, Bruce Bochy was a bad manager with San Diego Padres, a bad manager during the beginning of his time with San Francisco Giants, a great manager for the better part of five seasons, winning three World Series championships, and a bad manager after that with the San Francisco Giants. But once again, there's usually mitigating circumstances that determines the difference between a win and a loss. Sometimes it's so minuscule, but we tend to think that those that are overseeing are the ones that are determining the difference between said win and said loss. Spoke about non-tenders. Another thing, you know, people go out there, MLB trade rumors, which is has done a great job. And I give them a lot of credit. They're a comment-based comment uh, thread of baseball articles. And it's kind of like a cult following where people are kind of, you know, fumbling over each other to comment on the latest articles. But they've kind of taken this uh, like a cavalier type of approach as well, where they tend to want to tell teams what players they should non-tender. And they really haven't earned the ability to do that. A lot of it comes from writers that are trying to make predictions. Some of them are trying to make a name for themselves, and some are trying to just throw some reasonable thoughts out there. In the end, it's up to those teams and how much they value those players. And you as a writer, you as a talk show host, you as a fan, are never going to be able to get inside that front office and hear the discussion that's about said player. 
In other words, leave it up to the teams to determine what players they want to keep and what players they want to let go. Talked a little bit about Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle. I know it's going to be a kind of a wasted poll that I'm going to put up there on Twitter. I think it's going to be overwhelmingly in favor of Mantle. I think there's going to be some apologists that are going to be like, hey, Joe DiMaggio, what he did in 13 years was outstanding. But you look at Mickey Mantle's 14 years and you tell me, you can't say hands down that Joe D was better in his 13 than Mickey in his 14. But I have a feeling it's going to go more Mickey because there's more people around that got to see Mickey play. And the other thing, I'm going to try to maybe put a poll out of it too. Reggie Lewis, former Boston Celtics, small forward and shooting guard. Untimely death in 1993, just a little over a month after Drazen Petrovic passed away. Does he belong in the Naismith Pro Basketball Hall of Fame? We'll be back with you in probably in a couple days. We'll do another show. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.